Okay, turn in your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 3 and verses 10 to 14. Galatians 3 and verses 10 to 14. Galatians, the third chapter and verse 10. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive, so that we might receive the promised Spirit, the Holy Spirit through faith. And tonight we're going to look at that salvation that comes to us in Christ and his cross and the relationship to the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. And now our Lord, once again, we pray that you would grant us strength by the Holy Spirit to pay attention to your word. Lord, there's lots of pictures in what we're going to hear tonight. We thank you for the faculty of imagination and that we can take the words that we will hear as John Bunyan would have written them and picture in our minds, in the theater of the mind, all of these things that are rich with spiritual lessons. And so, Father, teach us. At points, we will laugh at some of these things, and at some points, we're going to cry. But, Lord, use all of these things to sanctify us in Christ Jesus the Lord. Amen. Now, there's certain things that you should not copy from John Bunyan's life and teaching. One is in the section that we deal with tonight. Because you have John Bunyan describing Christian coming to the wicket gate and then coming to interpreter's house and then coming to the cross. That's really a bad way to present things. And we'll give you the reason for that in just a moment. But uh, there were certain things in Bunyan's way of approaching the gospel that maybe needed to be corrected a bit. And with that in mind, I want to mention the book that we also mentioned this morning, The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson, Legalism, Antinomianism, and Gospel Assurance, Why the Morrow Controversy Still Matters. Pastors, I challenge you to read the book. Uh, perhaps set some time with your elders, elders reading it, and I would even be so uh, bold as to suggest you take part of a presbytery meeting to discuss this book uh, because it is a powerful presentation about what the free offer of the gospel really is and what it is not. One of the great lines that Sinclair Ferguson has in this very thoughtful book is that legalism and antinomianism are unidentical twins from the same womb. And he develops that theme in there. But if you're wanting a beautiful presentation, a very healthy 
and helpful presentation on that. Sinclair Ferguson's The Whole Christ. Okay. Um, what on earth, you've got your outline here in your book, what on earth is the wicked gate? Well, the wicked gate is the door. When Jesus says, I am the door, whoever goes in and comes out by me will find pasture. That's, that's what Bunyan is referring to by the wicked gate. The wicked gate was very often used as a tiny, as a narrow opening that would lead you into a pasture for sheep. Okay, So that is what the wicked gate is. But Bunyan then has a, the time he goes to interpreter's house and then eventually to the cross. Don't think of it like that. This is the background to this. John Bunyan, between 1649 to 1653, went through agonies in this early stage of his Christian life. In 1649, he had genuinely come to faith in Christ, but he struggled for four years with an assurance, for an assurance of his salvation. And brothers and sisters, assurance is not of the essence of saving faith, but it is of the essence of a healthy faith. And Bunyan, by his own account, had a rather unhealthy faith in those first four years where he continued to struggle with this burden on his back, and it was only in about 1653 as he really came to grips with the meaning of the cross that this burden on his back came off. Now with that in mind, the wicked gate is the Lord Jesus, and we are going to put the cross right next to that because the wicked gate is Christ. And listen to this beautiful description of Christian arriving, you can see it on the map down there, at the place of deliverance. So he, that is Christian, ran in this direction until he came to a place where the way ascended up a small hill and at the top stood a cross, while below it was a sepulcher, a stone tomb. So I saw in my dream, remember Bunyan is writing this as if it's a dream, so I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden fell from off his back, then it continued to tumble down the hill until it fell into the mouth of the sepulcher and was seen no more. At this point, Christian felt glad and overjoyed, and in his excitement he exclaimed, he has given me rest by means of his sorrow and life by means of his death. And there is a similar line in In Christ Alone. That's not exactly right. You don't get life by the death of Christ. You get life by the resurrection of Christ. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that we share in that resurrection life in Christ. But then we read, Then he that is Christian stood still for a while to look with wonder and amazement, for it was so surprising to him that the sight of the cross should accomplish the release of his burden. Therefore he looked again and again, even until inward springs of water flowed down his cheeks. Now as he stood looking and weeping, Behold, three shining ones or angels approached and saluted him with the benediction, let peace be upon you. For just a moment, I want you to bask in the glory of the cross. All, all, all of the punishment of everlasting hell that should be upon you and me for our sins that are against an infinite God, all of that, for all of his people, fell upon Christ. 
And when Christ was enshrouded in that darkness for three hours, that darkness was the outer darkness of hell brought up to surround the Savior so that in that time he endured what only God-man could endure. And when Jesus said, Tetelestai, it is finished, what he meant was at that point there is not an ounce more of punishment that is to be meted out to anyone who trusts in Christ a Lord. It is finished and there's no condemnation. That, dear brothers and sisters, will make the burden of your sin and your guilt fall off of your back. And that's exactly what Christian so beautifully, or Bunyan so beautifully describes at the cross, at the cross where he first saw the light and the burden of his heart rolled away. It was there by grace he received his sight. But he wasn't happy all the day because there's a lot more challenges yet to come. And it's very interesting that Bunyan writes, the shiny ones, the angels said to him, three, three things. Number one, your sins have been forgiven. And then the second angel stripped Christian of his rags, his self-righteousness, and clothed him with a complete change of garment, the absolutely perfect righteousness of Christ. If Dr. J. Gresham Machen made no great theological statements in his life, though he made a myriad of them, certainly the most famous was in his last telegram to Professor Murray, so thankful for the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. Complete change of garment, rags stripped away, and the third, and this is fascinating, the third angel also set a mark upon his forehead and gave him a scroll with a seal on it. And tomorrow we'll tell you what that scroll meant. It is a fascinating picture of something we don't think much about. It's very important in the Christian life. And then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing, Thus far that I come laden with my sin, nor could anyone ease the grief that I was in until I came here. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall from off my back? Must here the cords that bound it to me crack? Oh, blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man who there was put to shame for me. What a beautiful account of the Christian life. That's where it begins and never, never, ever let it end. Now, in the right way to view it, now we come to Interpreter's House. And with that in mind, I want you to look at a few texts, John chapter 7. Let's see, you're all in John, so it'll be easy to find. And children, hang in there, because we're going to start giving you some pictures to put down in just a moment. John chapter 7. Some of these texts actually refer to the giving of the New Testament by the Holy Spirit. Uh, others refer to the work of the Spirit in us when the Apostle John, the same writer of this, would say, you have an anointing from the Holy One. You have no need for anyone to teach you anything. Well, obviously you did, because the Scriptures tell us there's to be teachers. But there is an anointing, a ministry of the Spirit within, and, and that is in view in some of these texts. John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, 
Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him, and remember, at this biblical way of looking at things, Christian has believed in Christ, he's trusted in him, that those in him were to perceive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, that is, Pentecost hadn't come, because Jesus was not yet glorified or in heaven. But the Spirit would come. Incidentally, the Spirit is the great promise of the new covenant. When the apostle Peter, I love this, you know, our Baptist brothers and sisters will say, well, you know, Peter, when Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, he says that the, the promise is to you and to your children, to as many as the Lord our God will call, effectually. They miss the fact. When Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says the promise is to you and your children, what he's emphasizing there is not so much as many as the Lord our God will call as the promise is to you and to your children. What promise? The promise that Isaiah gives in several places, and Ezekiel does too, the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who is upon you will be upon your children and upon your children's children. And that's what Peter is preaching. Anyway, it's the Holy Spirit who's the substance of that promise. And then in John 14 and verse 26, John 14 and verse 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you, at least in part. I think this is referring to the giving of what we would know of as the New Testament, but it's also a promise that the Spirit will work in us. John 15 and verse 26, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. How? He takes in a completed scripture and tells you of Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit's ministry, folks, spotlight ministry. He puts his light on Christ Jesus the Lord. And when religion, certain aspects of Christianity, emphasize the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, they forget. Jesus says he'll take the things of mine and he will show them to you. And then in chapter 16 and verses 13 through 15, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it unto you. That is what is in view in the interpreter's house. Bunyan had a high view of the fact that from the time you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, there are certain, if I could put it in our own language, there are certain things that the Holy Spirit programs into the hard drive of your own redeemed soul. And those basic lessons programmed into the hard drive of our souls are the things that we learn in Interpreter's House. And what we're going to do, we're not going to visit all the rooms because we don't have time for all of them this evening, but parents, this is a kind of a model of what you can do with the children as you perhaps read these sections in Pilgrim's Progress. They're fascinating pictures. In some cases, they're even cute pictures. One of them, in my mind, is particularly memorable, and we'll read that a bit later. Another one's just downright scary. 
and we'll talk about that one in detail. But so children, starting your notes, and you can do one or two or three of these rooms, I want you to be drawing pictures as Pastor Shishko reads to you from Interpreter's House. Okay, first one, notice the pictures. You got the notes, Portrait of a Godly Pastor. This is beautiful. Why does he begin this way? Remember, brothers and sisters, everybody needs a pastor. That's the theme of a visit to the pastor's study. Incidentally, you know the reason why we need pastors, shepherds? Some years ago, we had a, I had a 90th birthday party for one of our members in Franklin Square. And um, one of the fellows was introducing me to the different extended family members. And he said, oh, he says, this is so-and-so. And, uh, and I said, oh, where's she from? Upstate New York. She's a shepherdess. And of course, for me, I'm saying to myself, what religious order is she in that she's called a shepherdess guy? We don't, I know we don't have, I knew it wasn't OPC. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, what, you know, what? And she's, and I, and I said, well, well what really? He said, no, 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 no. She, she's, she's one of the foremost authorities on sheep in the East. And I said, real ones? <laughs> and he said, yeah. And I just got done dealing with Jesus as the good shepherd. So, man, I made a beeline to this guy. She was fascinating. She was a Cornell graduate, and she was a, a real shepherdess. She understood sheep. And I had to pop my question to her. I said to her, you've got to answer this question for me. Are sheep really stupid? <laughs> I don't like that, but, you know, New York blunt. And she laughed, and she said, now, you, you try to figure the difference. I, I can't, but, but uh, I guess if you're a shepherdess, you can parse this in this way. She said, no. She said, sheep aren't stupid, but they are utterly unable to make any decisions on their own. I don't know the difference, but that's all right. I'll accept it from the shepherdess. And you know, folks, that's exactly right. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And that's why you and I need pastors. It's not just the Bible alone. The Bible is our final authority. But again, the, Philippi, the, the, the eunuch, how can I understand unless someone teach me? Anyway, here's this picture. I love this picture. Children, start your drawing. Now, interpreter, who is the Holy Spirit, interpreter led the pilgrim into a private room and there he ordered his man to open a door and then did Christian see the picture of a very grave serious a very serious person hanging against the wall and its features were as follows start your drawing children this man had his eyes directed up toward heaven the best of books was in his hand the law of truth was written upon his lips. The world was behind his back. He stood as if he pleaded with men, and a crown of gold hung over his head. Boy, that's a lot to draw. What then does this mean? The Holy Spirit says, of course, using the word of God, the man in the picture which you see is one in a thousand who can beget children travail in birth with children, nurse them himself when they are born, and just as you see him with his eyes looking up toward heaven, the best of books in his hand and the law of truth written upon his lips, this is to show you that his work is to know and unfold dark things to sinners. 
Similarly, just as you see him stand as if he pleaded with men, and also you notice that the world is cast behind him and that a crown hangs over his head. See, I'm reading this, children, so if you didn't get the picture the first time, you got it now and you can add it. This is to show you that in slighting and despising the things of the present on account of his love and devotion to his master's service, he is sure to have glory for his reward in the world to come. Now, I've showed you this picture first because the man who it portrays is the only man who is the Lord of the celestial city has authorized to be your guide in all of the difficult situations that you may encounter along the way. This is not Bunyan who had a clericalism that was stiff. This was John Bunyan who knew that precisely because we're sheep and precisely because there's a very active devil, there's loads of false teachers. And again, the language that's given here in slighting and despising the things of the present on account of his love and devotion to his master's service. He's sure to have glory for his reward in the world to come. He is the only man who the Lord of the celestial city has authorized to be your guide in all of the difficult situations that you may encounter along the way. Brothers and sisters, I know you as Orthodox Presbyterians, you're careful about your pastors. And you've got a presbytery that is careful about its pastors. Arguably, that's the most important work of a presbytery, is the oversight of men preparing for ministry, the licensing of them to preach the gospel, the ordaining of them to serve. And you thank God that you are part of a church that with all of its weaknesses and failings is blood earnest about the way in which it prepares and trains and ordains men to be your pastors. Here's the reason. Humanly speaking, your pastor will be either an instrument to save you or to damn you. And you don't want a man that'll be in that latter category. So that's why you esteem your pastors, encourage them, thank the Lord for them. Therefore, pay attention, says the Holy Spirit to Christian Pay attention to what I've showed you and carefully weigh in your mind what you've seen, lest in your journey you meet with some who pretend to lead you along the right path, while in reality their way leads to death. Wow, what a first picture. And the Holy Spirit, doesn't the Holy Spirit teach you that? You've got to have someone to help you understand. And God has his ways of putting us through life. As you read the scriptures, you wrestle with issues and so on, you've got to have somebody who can help you out. And this was actually dear Pastor Gifford, who was Bunyan's pastor. Okay, so that's the first picture, portrait of a godly pastor. Second one, this is a lot of fun. Maybe children might be a little bit difficult for you to pick it up. The next one will be a little bit easier. But, but draw the picture anyway. And adults, you can, you can get this one. Well, this is an interesting bug that is walking up here. I don't know what kind of bug this is. I hope you've paid your registration fee for the conference, but at least I'm glad you're very attentive to Pilgrim's Progress. Okay, the distinction between the law and the gospel. Then, Christian was taken by the hand and led into a very large, draw your pictures, young people, drawn into a very large parlor, a living room that was full of dust, having never been swept. 
Now, after we'd observed this scene for a little while, interpreter called for a man, interpreters the Holy Spirit called for a man to begin sweeping. As a result, the dust began to fly about so overwhelmingly that Christian was nearly choked to death. Interpreter immediately spoke to a gracious lady standing nearby. Bring some water here and sprinkle this room. The lady having done this, the parlor was then easily swept and cleansed. Wow, that's a lot of fun to draw. Somebody's sweeping, there's a broom, everybody's coughing because all the dust is up. A lady comes in, a very sweet and gracious lady, and she sprinkles water on the dust and everything's fine. Picture that. So Christian says, just what you do, say. What does that mean, interpreter? The parlor is the heart of a person who has never been sanctified. By this he means born again and justified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his original sin and inward corruptions that have thoroughly defiled the whole man. He who first began to sweep is the law. But the gracious lady who brought water and sprinkled the room is the gospel. Now, while you saw as soon as the man began to sweep that the dust so swirled about the room that it became even more difficult to cleanse and you were near choked to death, this is to show you that the law, instead of it effectively cleansing the heart from sin, does in fact arouse, give greater strength to, and cause sin to flourish in the soul. You go ahead and try to be justified by the law. And you meditate on the law and figure how you can be right with God with it. Go over and over and over again. You're like that person sweeping the broom with dust, and you're going to choke pretty quickly. And your eyes are going to begin to water very quickly. It can't happen that way. And this result is in spite of the fact that the law both uncovers and condemns sin, for it does not, but it does not have the power to subdue. The law has the power to convict you. It has no power to save you. Furthermore, as you saw the gracious lady sprinkle the room with water, draw your pictures, at which it was very easily cleansed. This is to show you that when the gospel comes with its sweet and precious influences indwelling the heart, then just as you saw the lady settle the dust by sprinkling the floor with water, so is sin vanquished and subdued and the heart made clean through the faith of that soul. And consequently, that same soul is then made a suitable place for the king of glory to inhabit. Don't ever confuse law with gospel. When you're saved by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit's at work in you, he will write the law on your heart, you will love it, but you're never going to look to it as the way to get you to heaven. And so this is one of the things the Holy Spirit teaches, the distinction between the law and the gospel, and never lose it. Next one, just real quickly, but children, you can draw. This is, this is a cute one for children because it's about two children. Uh, one, one child whose name is Passion, Passion, and the other whose name is Patience. And so you can try to draw these two. Moreover, I saw in my dream that interpreter again took Christian by the hand and led him into a very small room, very small room, in which there sat two little children, each one in his chair, like you young people in the front. The name of the elder was Passion and the other patience. Passion seemed to be very discontented, while patience remained calm and quiet. And then Christian asked, what's the reason for passion's unrest? An interpreter replied, the governor of these children would have him wait for the best things that are to be bestowed at the beginning of the next year. But he wants to have his inheritance now, while patience 
is quite willing to wait. Then I saw a person come to Passion and bring him a bag of treasure that was immediately poured out at his feet. At this, the elder child rejoiced and at the same time scornfully laughed at Patience. However, I noticed that very soon Passion's wealth wasted away with the result that he found himself left with nothing but rags. Christian says, I see that patience has superior wisdom, and that for several reasons. One, because he's willing to wait for the best things. Just speak to you young adults for just a moment. Desire to be married, I so appreciate that. You wait for the best one to come. There'll be all kinds of temptations to be a passion instead of a patience. But don't make the mistake of giving in to the passion side. Patience, patience. Two, and also because the glory of his inheritance will last when that of passion has long ago been reduced to rags. Yes, said the Holy Spirit, the interpreter. And you may add another reason as well. It's that the glory of the next world will never wear out while the good things of the present decay and then suddenly are gone. I read about the Christians in Iraq and Syria. In some cases, they have lost everything. Family, houses, churches, villages. In many ways, brothers and sisters, they're better than we are. Because you read their testimonies, and they say, even as they weep over what they lost, they will say something like this, it makes us long more for that inheritance that's promised to us in Christ that will be never be taken away. Here's why they're better than we are in many ways. Our inheritance is so great in this life. Wow, look at all that we have as Americans, that heaven and glory will take second place, if that. Remember passion and remember patience. Patience waited for the best part. Now, just one more before we get to the one on which I want to spend most of my time. And, and, and this, this is the one that is absolutely my favorite. I, I, abs I think that this is absolutely masterful. Um, it's, it's at this kind of thick title, The Grace of Christ Conquers the Assailed Heart. Um, listen to the story. It's a whole lot better than the subtitle. And remember, children, draw pictures. Then I saw in my dream that the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him to a place where there was a fire burning against a wall. In front of this fireplace was a man continually casting buckets of water on the fire in an effort to extinguish it. That's a great thing to put in your picture. Nevertheless, the fire continued to burn higher and hotter. Christian and us. What does that mean? Interpreter, the Holy Spirit. This fire 
is the work of grace that has been ignited in the heart. He who casts water upon it so as to extinguish this blaze is the devil. Even so, in that you see the fire burn higher and hotter, let me now show you the reason for this mystery. So the interpreter took Christian behind the wall and behind the place of the fire. And there the pilgrim saw a man with a container in his hand from which he cast oil upon the fire, though secretly. Then said Christian, what does that mean? Hence, interpreter replied, this is Christ who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart. By this means, notwithstanding what the devil attempts to do, the souls of his people still prove to be gracious. And in that you saw that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire, this is to teach you that it is hard for those who are tempted to understand how this work of grace is upheld in the soul. Wow. You read what the best of Christians have gone through. Trials without, trials within. Points at which they were at their wit's end when it came to their Christian lives, their families, their work, their health, in some cases, sadly, even a church situation. And they're about ready just to pack it up and leave. But they continue. They continue. They continue. They continue. Why? Well, the devil's at work dumping his buckets of water through all of those trials that come. But thank God that in back of the wall, the Lord Jesus Christ is constantly giving the oil of the Spirit so that you can say through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. To his grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. That's the great secret to the perseverance of the saints, Christ by the Spirit. I love that picture, the man behind the wall. Persevering, valiant, pilgrim. Parents, that's a great one to go over with your children because it does deal with the, the holy violence, not real violence, but the, the holy sincerity of a soldier in a battle uh, by which people pursue the Lord. Uh, the warning of the day of judgment uh, that is also given very powerfully at the very end. I don't have time to deal with that one. What I do want to deal with, though, is the man in the iron cage. Um, it's very interesting that, that if you were to um, think of each of these pictures as a, as a movie genre, like, like, a, like a movie, an interpreter's house, well, you have a movie about a hero, the, the portrait of the great, of the, of the godly pastor. There's drama. Law versus gospel is drama. Um, there's a morality play, passion and patience. There's a mystery. Why does the fire against the wall continue to burn even while there's water poured upon it? Ah, that's the stuff of a Sherlock Holmes mystery. There's war, the persevering, valiant pilgrim. And then, then there is a horror story. And that horror story is the story of the man in the iron cage. 
Then Christian said, let me go forward. But the interpreter replied, no, you must stay until I've showed you a little more. And after this, you can be on your way. So he took him by the hand again and led him into a very dark room where a man sat in an iron cage. Now this man seemed very sad to look upon. He sat with his eyes looking down toward the ground, his hands tightly folded together, and he sighed as if his heart would break. And then said Christian, what does this mean? So the interpreter told him to talk with the man. Christian, what are you doing here? Man, I am what I once was not. Christian, well, what were you once? The man in the iron cage. I was once a fair, flourishing, and professing Christian in the eyes of both myself and others. At one time, I was convinced of being fair, of being well set for reaching the celestial city and even had joyous thoughts of arrival at that destiny. Yes, but Christian says, what are you now? I am now a man of despair and am shut up. I am captive as this iron cage depicts. I cannot get out. Oh, how miserable I am, since I am now in a place from which I cannot escape. This has been one of the most debated, disputed, and frankly unliked portions of Pilgrim's Progress. Many say it shouldn't even be in this book. But Bunyan had a grasp of certain portions of Scripture that we're going to read in just a moment. I was once a thriving, professing Christian. I was one to whom the word of God had come by the great sower. And even for a while, I bore fruit. But I am not what I once was. The scary reality in this horror movie of apostasy and reprobation. Let me begin with my problem with this picture. And then my trembling, and I mean this, my trembling appreciation of this. Here's my problem. Someone who is truly given over to being in this iron cage of what we call reprobation, someone who's truly a reprobate would not respond like the man in the iron cage does. He wouldn't care. He wouldn't be bothered. He wouldn't even speak about his own inability to repent. He wouldn't feel that agony. It's sort of like the counsel that you give to someone who comes and says, you know, I really, I'm afraid I've committed the unpardonable sin. And every pastor who's even been through seminary practical counseling 101 knows the answer. If you're convicted that you have committed the unpardonable sin, then you haven't committed it, or you wouldn't be convicted. And so that's my problem with this picture. He wouldn't even be convicted of these things if he were truly reprobate. But here is my trembling appreciation of the man in the iron cage. 
This represents part of the teaching of Holy Scripture. Now with this, look with me please at a couple portions in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6 and verses 4 through 8. Pastors, I hope that at some point in your ministries, if you haven't preached on the book of Hebrews, I hope you will. It's not an easy book to preach on. I don't advise young ministers to begin uh, their work preaching through the book of Hebrews. It's, it's difficult in itself. It's difficult in order to organize. The material's dense. It takes a man of, of developed homiletical skills to do it, but preach on it. I see the theme of the book of Hebrews is don't turn back, don't turn back, don't turn back. And it's very interesting that Hebrews was probably written to Christians in Rome, not a few are converted Jews, um, who had been displaced during persecution. Christians in, in Rome were about ready to experience the persecutions that were to come. And they're told not to turn back. But anyways, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. For it is impossible... It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, which is to fall away from the gospel, to apostatize from the gospel to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Probably an allusion to Jesus' reference to the fig tree, corporate Israel, that did not bear fruit, showing it had no root, and then uh, was destroyed by the power of Christ. Hebrews 10, verses 26 to 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, and that sinning in this case is turning away from the gospel, turning back, turning back, turning back. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Very important question to ask people who have been brought up in the church and they want to turn away from the Lord. Where do you go for forgiveness of sins? That's a biblical question. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else can you go for the forgiveness of sins? There is no place in any of the recesses of this entire world or in this universe other than the cross where you can find the answer to that question. So that's what's meant here. No longer a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. It's rather simple. You reject the judgment of God for your sin in Christ, and you take that judgment yourself. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. But we are now in the new covenant where these principles do not apply anymore because we're in an age of grace. 
How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has, see, here's the sin, spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while. And the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, or but if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let me put that in real simple pastoral language. Countless times I've had to deal in New York with men and women who struggle particularly with drug usage or promiscuity in sex. And they have come with broken and contrite hearts to my study or to me speak at church. Pastor, I fell again. In most cases, sometimes it'll come after months or even years. I haven't fallen. They're stunned. What John Owen called sudden surprisals. And they are brokenhearted. They are devastated. They wonder how on earth God could ever get them to heaven. But they look to Christ. Praise the Lord. Thank God for his grace in that. The publican did not say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast, and he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's as if no one else had sinned in the world. I am the man. This one went away justified. There's hope for that one. But you get someone particularly someone who's been brought up in the church or has been a professed Christian for a while, and they come to you and they look you in the eye and they say, I've had it with this Christian faith. It's a lot of garbage. It's a lot of junk. I'm going to go out and I'm going to live my own life and I'm going to have fun. That's when I'm petrified because that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. My beloved brother and sister, Sin, sin, sin is horrible, sin is wretched, sin is despicable, sin is hell-deserving. But you come to Christ, and it doesn't make any difference what that sin is. You come to him with a broken and a contrite heart, and he loves to shower his grace upon you. And there's no conditions. You come, you come to him. But you turn away from him. And you don't know the kind of thin ice you're walking on. Okay, so that's, that's what the writer of, of Hebrews is dealing with. Now, let me deal with an important distinction as we're dealing with the man in the iron cage. You may feel in despair, but not really be without hope. A genuine Christian who has fallen into sin, I can think of one specific illustration, one in particular, one who had fallen into very deep sin, who felt in despair. He was convinced he was an Esau. I remember praying with him in the car as he wept and bawled, I'm an Esau, I've forsaken my inheritance. And let me tell you, his sin was awful. It was terrible. And it wrought havoc with his own family. But he wasn't really without hope. It was a horror movie for him. 
And for many years, he had no comfort. But he went, even though he moved to another state, and he finally began sitting under preaching again. He had to hear the word of God. He didn't stick around to be with people. He was too embarrassed. But God began to deal with that man in his mercy and in his grace. And after about three years, as he sat under preaching, worked with the pastor, there were specific areas of repentance that he needed to do to show that his, his, his convictions were genuine. And he went through those things and dealt with them. That man now is an, has an eminently useful life in the kingdom of God. Now here was someone who had fallen into despair because of his sin, but he wasn't really without hope. He continued to look to Christ, and he knew. He said, there's no other place. I knew I couldn't go any other place for forgiveness of sins. Now, here's the other side. You may not feel in despair, but be in an extremely dangerous position. You may not feel in despair. And by I mean you, I mean just in general dealing with others. A person may not feel in despair, but be in an extremely dangerous position. Here's a man with cancer, and that cancer is going through his whole body, beginning with his lungs, going to his kidneys, moving down to his reproductive organs, and eventually moving up to affect his brain. And he is given morphine to make him feel better, and he does. He does not feel the despair of having a terminal illness, but he is in an extremely dangerous position. The pleasures of sin, and they are pleasures, are for a season. The pleasures of sin are for a season. And here is the lesson to learn from this man in the iron cage, which I hope some of you children are drawing here. You and I must, must, must be careful in our Christian lives. Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 12, Therefore lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. See, here's the language of human responsibility. God is sovereign in back of these things. And don't you dare say, I'm elect. God has chosen me. He saved me in Christ. I'm justified, and he is going to take me to heaven by his sovereign grace. He is. And that sovereign grace is going to work in you to do things like lifting your drooping hands, strengthening your weak knees, making your straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one We'll see the Lord. That sounds Puritan. Sounds like Bible to me. That holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it, see to it, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness, it's a fascinating phrase, a root of bitterness, it's an interesting study, it refers to apostasy in the Old Testament, that no root of bitterness springs up. Incidentally, if you're bitter about your church life, about your pastor, 
about other Christians in the church, about your lot in life. You're just plain bitter over it all. I want to warn you, that's the first step toward apostasy. A root of bitterness grows up in you, and before you know it, you'll say, I don't want anything to do with the whole thing. See, that, that's the kind of thing that's in view. Anyway, um, and then a root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And my beloved pastors in here, if you're uncomfortable with this, because of how you may have received certain things in your theological training, you better begin to get comfortable with it because this is what the Word of God teaches. Is it hard to explain? Yes. Is it scary? You bet. But fear is one of the things our Father in Heaven uses, as in the horror story of the man with the iron cage, to keep us in the way of truth. You and I cannot, we cannot, we cannot, we cannot be too careful in our Christian lives. Here's the danger as we bring all of these things together. Here is the pleasure of sin. And that pleasure of sin begins to bring tiny spiritual heart attacks to us with each sin that is committed in thought and word and deed. And slowly there becomes a numbness or even a hardness as what happens in a person who has physical heart attacks, however small they may be. And then, and then they begin to avoid the very means of grace that can be of help to them. Begin to have problems with your health and you begin to slack up on your diet and on your exercise and on your self-discipline. And you avoid those very things that are what are absolutely necessary for you in the physical realm. The same thing will happen in the spiritual realm. I don't need to be sitting under the means of grace. I don't need to be reading my Bible. I really don't need to listen to preaching anymore. It's not as important to me. And then things begin to get worse because Satan is at work. The spirit is grieved. That can really happen. He's not a force. He's a person. The spirit can be quenched. And then there's that scary dynamic of God giving people up to their own lusts. Romans 1. This is our culture, folks. I mean, people say, well, is AIDS the judgment of, or sexually transmitted diseases the judgment for sin? No. Sexual homosexuality is. God gave them up to do those things, man with man, doing that which is against nature. God gives people up. And then this is when it really gets scary. People begin to mock the faith they once professed making fun of Christianity, making fun of the cross. And then the pride of self begins to replace faith in God. And the dynamic is the same dynamic as what happened to Lucifer when he became a fallen angel. Pride in self, however that dynamic worked out, replaced faith in God. And then what's scary, God abandons the person to himself or herself. And if there's no change, that's the way they die. 
Sounds solemn it is. Demas, in the book of Philemon, is a co-worker with the Apostle Paul. Demas, in Colossians chapter 4, is one who greets the saints. Demas, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, is the one who forsook Paul at the end of his life. And I think there is a person by the name of Judas who was with Christ and became a son of perdition. Wow, that's scary. Now, this doesn't sound reformed. I'd urge you to read John Calvin on Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4. I had to bring it with me, but read, read what the master Calvinist says about this. But isn't it true that the elect cannot be lost? Sure is. But we don't live out of God's decree, folks. The secret things of the Lord belong to the Lord. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children, that we might keep the commandments of the Lord our God. Man doesn't live by bread alone or even by the decree of God, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So as we bring all of this together tonight, please, brothers and sisters, friends, don't play with the things of everlasting life. I know we're in an age in which it's neat to be cool and jocular and have a lot of fun about the Christian faith, and there's certainly a place for that. But the safest place is utmost seriousness about two things. One, holiness. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And number two, the gospel. The good news, come to Christ, and there is full and free forgiveness in him. And those are the two rocks on which you are always stepping as you make your way through the very powerful currents of the waters of this world, the stone of holiness and the stone of the gospel. And remember that language in the man in the iron cage. I was once a professing Christian. I don't know who originally said it. It's been attributed to virtually everybody. But it doesn't make any difference. It's a great statement. Many start well. Fewer run well. And far, far fewer still end well. Let me wrap up this with, again, the man in the iron cage. How did you come to be in this condition? I neglected to watch and be sober. I loosed any restraint that had been on my lusts and gave them free reign. I sinned against the light of the word and the goodness of God. I've grieved the Holy Spirit so that he's departed from me. I have provoked God to anger. He's abandoned me. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. For what reason did you bring yourself into this sorry condition? On account of the lusts, pleasures, and profits of this world. It was in the enjoyment of these things that I promised myself increasing delight. But now they are all, as it were, have come to snap back and bite me. They gnaw at my soul like a burning worm. But can you now not repent and turn from this wretched condition? No. 
for God has denied me repentance. His word gives me no encouragement to believe. Now, the word always gives you an encouragement to believe, but to one in a reprobate condition, this is true. Yes, he himself has shut me up in this iron cage so that even all the people in the world are unable to obtain my release. Oh, eternity, eternity. How can I possibly grapple with the misery that I shall encounter in eternity? And now the Holy Spirit gets the last words. So remember this man's misery and let his sorry condition be a perpetual warning to you. And Christian responds by saying, this is a most fearful situation. May God help me to watch and be sober and pray that I may shun the cause of this man's grief. Let's pray. Father, we are so in need of the interpreter. We are so in need of the Holy Spirit to guide us through godly pastors and elders, to others, helps that you send. We are so in need of the Holy Spirit's work to come as water upon the dust of our own giving into sin and even trying to be justified by the law. We are in need of the Holy Spirit's work to give us that patience and long-suffering that we need. We are in need of the Holy Spirit's work to make us bold in the things of God. We're in need of the Holy Spirit's work to bring upon us the powers of the age to come. But Lord, we are in need of the Holy Spirit's work to continue to make the fires of life in us burn. Oh God, grant him. Grant his work to convict us. Grant his work to comfort us. And grant his work to teach us Grant his work to restrain us from iniquity. Grant his work to transform us. O oh God, our greatest need is of the Holy Spirit. And our Father, for those, and we all know at least one, but for those who are on the path of this man who ended up in the iron cage, pursue them even now as the great hound of heaven Make them miserable in their own pleasurable sin and turn them to Christ. And, O oh God, make us to be a people who before all that we meet uphold the great Lord Jesus Christ whose grace is far greater, whose grace is infinitely greater than not just some of our sin but all of it. And take those now headed for the iron cage and bring them back to that great liberty that they have only in the great liberator, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.